SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. My war chest is down to 100 million yen. And Alex. Arigato. This is um, the second to last in the uh, great tradition of battles without honor in humanity. Of the original five film cycle, yes. Uh, we are talking about battles without honor in humanity, police tactics. Uh, also known in Japanese as Jingi Naki Tatakai Chozo Sakuzen, uh, directed by Kinji Fukasaku, uh, written by Kazuo Kazahawa, based off an original story by Koichi Ibuichi. And it stars, the, as Mad Magazine would say, the usual gang of idiots, came out in January 1974. Um, it, this is easily, I say this every time, but the plot in this movie I found especially hard to follow. To have this much stuff going on in 101 minutes just blew my head off. I could not believe how how densely packed uh, this movie is. And it also, in, in some ways, was not what I was expecting. Um, Thrasher, any kind of quick thoughts on this before we dive in? Well, I was expecting more police tactics. Uh, <clears throat> there isn't very many yeah. until the end, but then you get a whole what lot. What an of... ending. Yes. Right. And that's the funny thing, too, is that um, like going into it when I heard the title Police Tactics, I'm like, OK, this is the evidence that they're running out of steam. Is that like they're going to make a like a police centric one? And like you were saying, there's not a lot of police centric activity going on outside of the first few minutes. And um, then, you know, you, you go through the little montage of um, of info at the beginning and the recap and all that. And then. Uh, it very much goes back into the usual Yakuza papers, you know, info dump of, you know, alliances and all this other stuff. But, uh, yeah. Misleading, but I guess in a good way? I mean, with the way the Battles Without Honor and Humanity series goes through info dumps, uh, they'd be having quite a hard time in the modern day of the COVID-19 epidemic. Yes. The paper shortage. They would not be able to move around the way they can either. All right, so we talked about the opening info dump, and this, well, first, this movie really captures a a very down-to-earth version of the 1960s, Uh, but the thing that jumped out at me is that that a a whole part of the framing device for this is 1964 in the run-up to the Summer Olympics, which were going to be held in Japan that year, which, you know, was a big deal, you know, it being uh, after, you know, so far after World War II, this is really the moment when Japan is coming into its own as a world power post-war and, and kind of regaining regaining the respect of its fellow nations. But what jumped out at me uh, is that the 
the Olympic Committee is so litigious. I am shocked how many times it got mentioned and how many times we saw their logo. I can only assume this was before they were got so yeah. litigious about depictions of the Olympics, even in historical context, or the Japanese uh, copyright laws work just differently enough uh, that the makers of this movie were able to do it without having to deal with uh, their lawyers. Yeah, which is an interesting thing to bring up because um, the Tokyo Olympics that year in uh, 64, I believe, was a big deal because Kan Ichikawa, a huge big deal um, director, like like filmed them, like he made a movie about them, like a documentary about them, and they're, and they're fantastic. Um, and just like you said, the fact that it's so heavily dependent on that information is pretty wild because this wasn't like a, you know, it's not a low-key thing, it's the Olympics, and it's also a very publicly, it's very publicly profiled, um, you know, Olympic ceremony that went on. And um, it's also kind of um, consistent with the series going from, you know, the Yakuza getting more and more legitimate as the, as the series goes on. It's ironic with the Olympics in Tokyo as well because um, as of this recording... The Olympics for the summer of 2020 was going to be in Tokyo, but because of coronavirus, it's been delayed, uh, at least for now, to July 23rd, uh, 2021. That's right, yeah. So, weird coincidence there. I believe, was that documentary on the Olympics, was that a Criterion release on the Tokyo Olympics? or? Yeah, it was. It was a Laserdisc title that got an upgrade to be like the first line and then it was out of print forever but then criterion did this huge um like olympics set that's right that's right ago. with the, a few no, different that. olympics years in there pretty cool um i mean with this you the the plot thickens as as the saying goes and so much is going on so many new characters after the end of uh, the prior film proxy war i sort of expected this to be more uh, of an action picture, silly me. This is a battles without honor and humanity movie, and so you get a lot of really good scenes. I mean, there's stuff I did like about this picture, but it, kind of what I was expecting the whole thing to be is what we see in like the last 15 minutes, which well, just the, get bananas. Yeah, well, I with would, them, uh, killing each other. Well, I would say after after the first third, where everything gets kind of set up, I think we do see overall more action in this film than True. In any yeah, of the others. Yeah, more than. But it's it's kind of deceptive because while there while there is a lot of violence, most of the action we see involves people running towards an act of violence that is not necessarily depicted, or running away from an act of violence which was not necessarily depicted. Right, and um, I like that you have like a like a few montage moments of of of, of uh, skirmishes and scrapes and fights and stuff that are depicted in that like. It's a testament to how busy these movies are that Kenji Fukasaka actually has to make like little like photo montages to like you know indicate the passage of of time and how much shit's going on. Um, and this probably is the most like loaded episode in the series. I think it's the longest running. It comes in at what 101 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And the other ones I think were like you know 90 something minute range. Um, yeah, this one's definitely definitely pretty loaded, and it almost feels more like Proxy Wars two. Sure. And police tactics. I think police tactics is just a way to, you know, put an interesting title at the front. Well, um, except at this point, it's not a proxy war. It's the actual people fighting, and it's all bleeding over into the streets. 
Right, right. And and that's the thing I really liked about this is you, as you said, Thrasher, this mentions, you know, it's kind of like a look at the common man in Japan in the 1960s. But not just that, so much of the, the Yakuza are really at their height of their uh, power struggle. They, they've gotten quite wealthy. They're, they've gotten wealthy. They've gotten sloppy. All their violence is spilling out into the streets. It's hurting. Civilians are in the way. They don't just do uh, discreet assassinations in alleyways anymore. This is like all, uh, you know, shot up close and personal like the violence has in this whole series with the, the shaky cam. But you you really feel that it is because this violence is out in the open where everyone can see it. It increases the public support for the police against the Yakuza when they started as a kind of, uh, I don't know if I'd say noble intent, but sort of like a, a Robin Hood kind of Yeah, there's a rogue element thing. there. Yeah, yeah. Helping, well, helping talk- the... We've talked about them, you know, li- living by a code, but, you know, mm. the, the more successful they become and the more sort of volatile young men they recruit, the, the more they, the organization as a whole fails to live up to that code. Right. And I think um, the, and the interesting thing is that you always say when you, like, one of the common critiques when you watch a, a movie, a gang film, or, a, or an action film of any kind is, you know, it's like, oh, the police would have shut that down, or like, oh, the cops would have come, or, you know, this is kind of like an answer to that. It's like, how could these guys, you know, get away with cutting each other up and shooting each other down and blowing each other apart? And it's like, well, you know, this actually does answer that question of police intervention, which kind of, again, substantiates a, the, the narrative in, in, a, in a big way. Well, part, part of that is that so... You know what? The reason they can't go after these people is, you know, pl- plausible deniability. Y- you can't, like, y- you can't look at this m- murder in the street and pin it directly to one of these big wigs. There's too many layers of subordinates uh, keeping them insulated. But one thing I love, and this is kind of true with all crime, it's certainly true in the United States. Uh, it's true uh, in Japan in this film that most of the big wigs, when they do finally get taken down. It's for things like tax evasion and not oh, yeah. having properly maintained business licenses. Yeah, you have someone who's a borderline mass murderer and they go down on a RICO predicate. You know what I mean? <laughs> like... Well, the, the one thing I thought we were going to see, and I'm rather surprised we didn't, is I thought we were going to have like at least one corrupt cop or or police detective that... Or, or, or something, and we ne- and we never actually get that. And I don't think it's like out of respect for the Tokyo Police Force. I, I think it is because they uh, because uh, 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 Fukasaku wants to keep the the all the conflict contained within the yakuza. You know, ha- having having mm-hmm. crooked police officers, district attorneys on the take, and whatnot just needlessly right. complicates this narrative. It's already very complicated, and I think. Um... The uh, screenwriter um, uh, Kazuo Kasahara was um, he was involved most heavily in Proxy War in this one as well, and um, I believe he gets Kasahara gets a credit for the final chapter, the next one. But I think um, he handed off the he handed off the torch to uh, another screenwriter after this film. So I think he was kind of like unloading a lot of information in this movie because I don't he, he knew he wasn't going to be a part of the fifth and final chapter so much. So I think that was a thing is that like, you know, I think they might've adopted the police tactics moniker. And then they also had this like very, again, intricate mapped out, um, you know, uh, machinations of the Yakuza world. And um, what I also find fascinating is that the, um, the police intervention is interesting because, you know, it, it does 
pose a problem <laughs> to the Yakuza doing their 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 bit of business. And um, like you were saying, you know, um, one thing I guess I guess one minor complaint I would have is that you don't really have a point of view from the police if you had, like you said, a, a crooked cop or a commissioner or a sergeant or something who is kind of on the take or something that would give you a, a bit more of a, you know, a widened perspective. But then again, there's so much going on here that you couldn't really have that. You hit the nail on the head, Alex. I, re- I really think that the title is such a misnomer and brings so many questions to mind that calling it even something as, as rote as Proxy War 2 would have been more honest. Right. And, and the way, I mean, some other research I did by research, I mean, just looking at Wikipedia uh, for the final film, it, meant, it, it, seemed, it seems like the writer, you know, didn't really want to do a fifth one. He seems like he said everything they had to say. And uh, it, the only thing I can really compare it to is, is something I've brought up on this show numerous times. Uh, J. Michael Straczynski's show Babylon 5 was meant to have five seasons. And then it was going to get canceled after season four. So we crammed season four and five into one season. Then after that, TNT picked it up for a fifth season. They're like, oh, shit, what do I do now? Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's kind of a thing where they're, these films are all very densely packed with good characters, good plots, good plot twists, uh, all, all sorts of good things. But this one especially seems like a really heavy load to be carrying. And I think that, that theory uh, you mentioned makes sense. What? Well, Sorry, oh, oh, thank you. Uh, so I, I think, like, looking back on this film, I think the use of police tactic as the title is somewhat ironic because it's not about mm. the tactics used by the police; it's the tactics the yakuza use to deal with the police. And take going so far sure. is that, like, if, if you're paying attention, you'll realize how much in action the Yakuza has in terms of dealing with this police crackdown. And then, and then you realize, Oh, the, the Yakuza's are, are counting on the police to take out the rival gangs and they want them to, because then that creates a power vacuum that the surviving gangs can sweep into. That's why the total crackdown becomes so necessary in the film's third act. Right. There's um like, there's a great scene where um again, like, I guess to um, backtrack a little bit, like when they're, a couple of uh, underlings are burying guns, you know, and they put them in like an ammo box and they put a little board of wood and you see the, you know, the procedure of evading the police tactics. And then they're like, they're like, oh shit, someone's coming. And they're like, oh, like, like, let's make it look like we're taking a piss. And then yeah. someone's like, is this going to rust them? They're like, oh, you know, and then they, then they pee on each other's legs, you know, and you get another, again, a, a good moment of, of humor there. Um, and it, what's fun though, is that it's not, like you said, it's not so much a police tactics, but, the Yakuza's evasive maneuvers of the police tactics is what makes it interesting. And um, in like so many instances in this series, there's so many, it, it seems so much more convincing because you see the, the, the level of, um, of, of scheming that goes in and, you know, someone's going to do this thing to make so-and-so lose face. So this other, you know, syndicate can muscle in and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's almost like the police are another agent in the, you know, inner workings of the Yakuza syndicates as if they were another Yakuza family, you know, like these actions have the same level of repercussions that another family would have, so to speak. 
So you, you mentioned the uh, like the pissing on each other's shoes. There is quite a bit of comedy in this movie, but it's very, very grim, but it's also very much like workplace comedy, provided your workplace is a criminal syndicate. Right. Um, there, there was a scene I just found absolutely delightful when, you know, when, you know, the, they, they have to scale back their operations, money's getting tight, and this one Yakuza boss is handed a stack of itemized receipts. Like, what is this? Guns. <laughs> yes. Geishas. Yep. Liquor. It's like, what the, there's nothing on this. It's like, what's this? Oh, that's the noodle shop. After a job, the, the guy, the underboss, likes to take all his, all his boys and his gang to this nice noodle shop. <laughs> yeah, 20,000 yen. Yeah. And that sheaf of receipts... <laughs> comes back later it is a point of contention that drives the violence it's hilarious too because the narrator actually says like the uh, like the enormous bar tabs and spending was more problematic than the actual like fighting itself yeah well i mean at this point they're a business so it's the money yeah. that matters. it's a it's a traveling expense it's like you know taking your buddies out on the company card you know well i mean it also foreshadows the tax evasion charges yeah exactly <laughs> Not not just that, but uh, another scene of, of sort of comedy that, that also kind of threw me for the loop because the, what the comedy uh, does in, in all these um, Yakuza paper uh, films is it fools the audience into relaxing. You're like, oh, this is funny. This is a light moment. And then quite right. often right afterwards, like, bam, it's a big scene of violence. Or like I, I'm thinking in particular a scene late in the film where uh, a group of gangsters are out at a, at a sauna. And and they're relaxing and, and kind of joking and and the looks like looks like you have some I don't know about ritual but you have like the younger people giving a bath to the older people and sponging their backs and making jokes and then they're all hiking in the woods at this uh, after doing the hot springs and they're in good spirits and then a guy you know comes out of the woods and says are you this guy and the guy oh, says yeah. yes and and then he shoots him right and then right. so you you had a scene of them relaxing. The gangsters are relaxing. The audience is relaxing, yeah, and then the guy and the guy comes out of the woods. I mean, I when uh, when I was in Japan for a month in 2006, I got to go to a sauna, and I was reminded of that from this scene. But it was quite odd as a Westerner going into a Japanese sauna. This was not one in the countryside, but uh, if I might humor you, could I regale you with my exploits? Absolutely. Oh yeah. Not tell us your soap story. Yeah. Yeah. Cut me off as a sequel cast uh, legend goes. So <laughs> I was in Japan for a month in Agui Sidani, which is a prefecture in Tokyo, uh, a few stops uh, counterclockwise of Akihabara, the electric district. That's neither here nor there, but it's this kind of sleepy area. Across from where we, we stayed at was um, a, a sauna that had these big signs, and it was a uh, nude uh, sauna. I had never done that before, but I'm like, I'm in Japan. I don't know anybody. I don't want to go with my uh, male friends to this necessarily. I want to try it out by myself. So I just went like at the crack of, you know, at like one in the afternoon when everyone else is sleeping. Uh, and they, they have these signs, these cartoon drawings of like what not to do. And it's drawings of Americans. And it's like, don't do your laundry in the sauna. Don't do It's like all these weird things. <laughs> But but I went and I, I you know, I, I did it and I was proud I did it. I was, um, uh, but you go in and, what is it? Like like in an American gym, you would go and you might see a hot tub and you might see a swimming pool, like in the same area. Yeah. yeah. And everyone has their clothes on. This one, it was separated by the sexes. 
So if you're a male, uh, I mean, I'm male. So right, as a guy, it's all naked dudes in there. I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't care. Uh, and they have three different saunas. One is hot. One is boiling hot. The other is lukewarm and looks kind of brown because it has minerals of some kind in it. Ooh. And so I kind of like go and uh, between the different ones and some of the people, I think one of the old men like knew English and we were just having a, a conversation. But in the middle of all this was like kind of a bench and an old man, an old naked man uh, <laughs> got out of the hot tub, has this towel and he starts like whipping himself like he's a character out of Hellraiser or something like <laughs> shrieking, going like ha, 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 as, <laughs> as he's doing this. I think that is supposed to invigorate the circulation. That that would make sense, but it also seems like a flatulation, you know, like like but, sort ah, of, bah. yeah, yeah. But I I think you're right, Thrasher. That, that's a good guess. But uh, I haven't thought of that moment in a long time. But watching the scene of the the Japanese man in the sauna having a good time, I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I I had something, uh, not like that happen to me. You know, I don't know. It just reminded me of that that fond memory. And uh, hopefully, you listeners are here of sequel cast two will enjoy that but um but but the yakuza connection is they had posters that said if you have any tattoos of any kind we will not let you in here oh yeah it's a big deal like um they make like little prosthetic things that will fit onto your pinky stump like that way you like really ah so you can still go social clubs like if you want to join like if you're a reformed yakuza and you want to join like a country club or something if they see like a pinky stub on your hand they will definitely not take you whether or not you did your time or you're a reformed member of society or not. So the, the scene, the scene with the bathhouse, you, you mentioned how those scenes are meant to, to lull the audience into a false sense of security and the, and the violence that we see after that, when the guy yes. is shot, well, well, one, this is some of the most gruesome shooting deaths that have been depicted in these films. They are oh. lingering mm-hmm. deaths. The people thrash. They're clearly in a lot of pain. What one guy survives his injuries, but it's a, a thread throughout the movie that he is continually coughing up blood, but otherwise looks healthy and is plotting his revenge. But something that I did took me so by surprise, uh, was when uh, at at the bathhouse when he's shot and he's writhing around uh, in 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 the garden, uh, blood splatters onto the camera lens and it yeah. stays there for the rest of the shot. They commit to it and they allow that blood to obscure the view. Right. That is such a compelling shot. And it's amazing because it's just like that. This is such a consistent series, and Fukusaka is such a consistent director in that they don't, like you said, they commit to it and they stick with it. And that's what makes it so great in that, like, it'll cut back and forth, and then it cuts back to that low shot where the blood's on the lens. And then you're like, oh, man, I can't see what's going on. But then at the same time, you're like, it's just, it works. Like, it's so gritty and and down and dirty and stuff like that. And, um... It's very much tantamount to like the the Fukusaku aesthetic of, you know, again, murder isn't pretty. It's it's quite horrible, and you know, people get hit and they writhe around. You know, this isn't like a little headshot Scorsese thing where someone just kind of like oh, falls over. You know, you get shot, you grab your abdomen and, and and you howl in pain, and then you know your 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 assailant is is kind of scared and confused, and then they they squeeze off a few more rounds, and then someone tries to attack you and you drop your gun and run away. It's, it's very powerful stuff. And I think it's, um, it's a consistency through the series, which I, 
I love in, in, in a very perverse way and how graphic and, and disturbing it is at times. And again, it doesn't ever give you a second to really glorify the actions of organized crime in any way. So something that in, in this movie that really shows you the difference between uh, American and uh, Japanese gangster films when they're trying to achieve any level of realism. So, so you know, we, we, we three, we're, we're from America. We have unprecedented access to firearms. And that's born oh, yeah. out in our gangland movies. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it, there's there's Fetishized. nothing to stop a whole gang of people to all have their Thompson or uh, or or whatever the the, the gun of the day the Tommy is. Tommy guns, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, of course, in Japan, firearms are much more heavily restricted. In the early films, we saw how most of the firearms were uh, serv- American service revolvers that kind of fell off the truck and were passed around amongst the right. gang. Uh, and in, by but at this point, they have quite a collection of firearms. And well, one, it's not nearly as many as you would expect. Uh, two, they're all completely inconsistent. The first firearm we see, which the police uncover while raiding the home of a Yakuza boss, is a matchlock uh, rifle, which <laughs> I which I believe is the firearm that the Dutch introduced to Japan. Yep. In the late 17, early 1800s. Yep. So a truly archaic weapon. We see it. We see it used much later in the film. Oh, yeah. uh, likewise, one of the uh, the guns in all the hiding places, uh, very early on we see them, uh, they have a sawed-off shotgun. And such care is taken sharpening the barrels. It becomes mm-hmm. both a firearm, a bludgeon, and a piercing oh, yeah. weapon. And there, there, there is this part of it. Well, they... they, they they can't. They're not actually going to show somebody get stabbed with the right. shotgun, are they? That's like, what I was thinking too. Like when I first saw this, you see the guy filing it down, and he's like, Ugh. like, and, and I'm like, that's. I'm like, that's fucking crazy because like well, shotguns already have this like mythical, like status in movies. You know, like if you get shot with a revolver, you fall over or something. If you get shot with a shotgun, you you get thrown across the room. And I'm like, you're gonna take a shotgun and then make it this like bayonet barrel too at the same time. Like it's fucking bonkers well in in an american uh movie that would be absurd but in this movie it is just another truly brutal weapon and when the shotgun is used to literally stab and disembowel somebody uh it 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 not only it not only feels uh realistic it feels inevitable oh yeah and i think the guy does more damage with the sharpened barrel than the actual firearm <laughs> like i mean he takes out a couple dudes by you know unloading both barrels but i mean he probably you know stabs like four dudes in the process after you know emptying both barrels of that shotgun and it's and like you said it's like in an american film you know if someone takes out a shotgun it's like oh hey all bets are off you know the yeah the, right the scatter guns out um and then this it's like nah man i'm gonna blow you away and i'm gonna fucking stab you with my sharpened barrel like it's crazy <laughs> other thing i like is uh, around that same time when they're modifying the shotgun is you know they have all their equipment out they have to make their own ammunition and shell yeah. casings and pack their own shotgun shells and and one uh i grow i i grew up around hunters uh yeah. that's that's pretty much it if you if you have a br- bunch of hunters together and somebody has the equipment to make their own shotgun shells oh, yeah. that's what they're going to do and it's pretty much just like that there's a little bit yep. of talk there's a little bit of passing stuff around yeah. but the other thing just just to put it the brutality where the one guy yeah 
the one guy has the bright idea. It's like, well, I got this powdered cyanide. We just pack that in with the buckshot. Mm. It contaminates their wounds. So right. even if they get to a doctor, they're they're still gonna they're as good as dead. That was it's, shocking. It's frightening because it puts you in like um like a like a Vietnam setting. You know what I mean? With like the punji sticks or something like that. What it's like, is, you know, I kept expecting the cyanide, the powdered cyanide, to come back. And in fact, when when uh, the one boss who's been been with us from the beginning uh, is a, is arrested, and he gets sort of his sentence gets argued down to like a year and a half in prison, and right. his wife brings in his bottle of tonsil medication. My whole thing was, oh oh shit, they poisoned the me- they've poisoned that, right. and he's not going to make it out of this meeting alive. He's going to take the fall for the whole organization. Only to realize, oh no, they tricked me. That's just alcohol. She's smuggling him alcohol, yeah. so he has something to drink while he's in prison. Yeah, some booze. Yeah, and that was another thing. I thought that, like, you know, someone would catch like a leg shot or something. They'd be like, oh, I'm fine. Then, then, you know, an hour later, they're 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 done because it's cyanide tipped or some friendly fire or something like that. But it, it puts you in the perspective of like the guerrilla warfare of of these guys. You know, they got cyanide tipped bullets and. In you know bayonet barrel shotguns and stuff like that, and it's like it's not high tech. It's like like you said, if you're around hunters or people who know armory, it's like you know you take some of the powder out, put some rock salt in there, and ugh, you know you can play around with some shotgun shells. And um, it's very down and dirty, and it's just like the the series. It starts out down and dirty, and it it it's very like I said, it's like one of the most consistent series I've ever encountered. But the way they wanted to do that with the shells reminds me of something that would happen. Uh, I guess it was around the time of this film because it was uh, during like Vietnam. But you had the punji sticks, right? Yeah, were, exactly. you had these sharpened like, sticks, and sometimes they would smear um, crap on that, but liter- literal feces yeah. on it, and and people would get infected. They would not only get punctured by falling on the spikes, but uh, they they would have uh, poop seep into the wounds and. Infect the uh, the person uh, doing well, you double get, damage. You get septic wounds, and but yes, yeah, not a good and, thing. It's, and like yeah, a, and like a, a, a septic wound is one of the the few wounds where amputation is often it, it, even mm-hmm. with modern medical science, amputation is the most effective treatment. Oh yeah, no yeah, it's uh, it's, it's freaky stuff yeah. And again, it's a uh, very uh, very much. It's it's wild because I just I I when I first saw this I really thought the series was gonna taper off at some point. I really thought that it was just gonna be like, oh, okay, you get a couple good movies and then you know they start to suck after the second or third ones, and then right. you know we come around around four and it's just as just as vital and exciting as as any other volume in the in the series. And uh, your point earlier, Thrasher, about the escalation of violence is uh, certainly the case, especially as as the film goes on. You just get this nonstop montage of these gameland killings out in public, uh, and you see just the the citizens scattering away, screaming. Well, the scattered away screaming, but then it's it's given a counterpoint as as the citizens start to band together and rise up and start True, to, like, yes. to take the take to the streets. Mm-hmm. It, and it's and it's really fast, and, and the police realize they're going to have to act, or else the common citizen really will, and then they lose all credibility. Right, and yeah. that and they have to wait that long to actually act 
But but I also like that that's when the Yakuza know that the game is up. It's like, oh, well, we lost the war of public opinion. Once right. the people are against mm-hmm. us, we can't operate any business, mm-hmm. the legitimate or the illegitimate. Because the rogue bandit Robin Hood element is just basically gone at that point. You know, you have a ci- civilian revolt there. And when you don't have, like you said, when you've, when you've lost public opinion, it's like you, you've basically lost the greater struggle. Um and that's uh, it's 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 incredibly fascinating, and it's incredibly um, it's incredibly believable because you know there's this rogue element, this Robin Hood element, and uh, you know at this point in the series we're close to twenty years out, so you know of course this cycle's gonna it's very you know pendulumatic of you know you go from amiable rogues to just you know thugs who are fucking up life for everyone else in the reconstruction of Japan, and that's what's pissing everyone off well you mentioned the reconstruction of japan uh so in, in each of these movies the final shot is always that one bombed out building and of course this movie ends the same way but in this movie in contrast to all the other movies most of the shots of that building are pretty tight in at a pretty elevated angle so generally we just see the building and some of the rubble around it this is the first time the camera is pulled back just enough and angled in such a way that we can see the rest of the hiroshima skyline behind it and it's at that moment of that final shot we can see how much japan has built back up how much japan has grown Mm -hmm. And how much Japan is ready to move beyond the post-war chaos represented by the Yakuza. Well, it, and this, it, well it's just such a compelling shot in and of itself, but with the vo- visual vocabulary established in this series, uh, it just it just hits you like a tidal wave. Not yeah. just that, but the, the historical context of that building, that building was the epicenter of the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. Mm. And they have that steel reconstruction uh, on on where the dome was to to keep it intact, so it's a visual reminder of the the damage the A bomb caused. Yeah, I believe it's called a uh, Curry Tower, or the Hiroshima Tower, um, mm-hmm. and it's like the landmark of the series, like in the pamphlets and stuff like that. That's like the the graphic on it and stuff. Um, and like you said, it it always each episode wraps up with an image of that or a panning yeah. shot of that, um, and it's it's. It's wild because, um, like you said, the violence and it's very visceral. And another thing I noticed is that there's not as much gun violence in this movie. There's a lot of um, guys getting hacked up with Kanto swords or Tanto swords, uh, mm. short blade swords that you would have. And um, it's kind of like a point of um, it's kind of like a point of like respect in the Yakuza community, where, like for instance, there's like a, a in present day society, there's a Yakuza in Japan who is his reputation is that he actually killed someone with a sword. And that like makes his name ring out like freaking mm. out Capone, you know what I mean? Mm. And um it's uh it's a very like it's culturally consistent and revisionist in a way that, you know, um of uh, of this uh desperation of, you know, of by any, you know, achieving your goals by any means possible. And that you can, you know, hack a dude up and and it's just as you know effective as blowing them away because the guns were and the weapons were very you know kludged and consistent like if you talk to an old timer who is a gun person they'd be like i don't want to use an automatic they jam and you see a lot of jamming pistols in this movie in these movies oh yeah 
So I think we've had a pretty good discussion about this film. Any last kind of thoughts we want to add? I feel like I've, I've said my said my piece. I mean, th- this I I am amazed, but th- this is still a definite sequel. Yes, I really want to see what happens. Uh, and and I'm I'm I am kind of shocked we didn't see like any of the Olympics and gambling trying to get in there. But of course, they were success. I, I the context of the film successful getting the Yakas out. That that ending though, where uh, Hirano and his other compatriot are just Great. sort of in prison waiting to be shown to their cells. And there's that broken window, sort of, and the snow oh, yeah. is blowing in, and they're talking about how cold it's going to be over the next seven years for their new sentences, and just, and yeah. and just that you know after everything they've done, and just that broken window, that that symbolism of a broken piece of infrastructure. Oh, I fe- I felt the cold in that moment. Oh yeah, you want to put another blanket on, and um, the thing too is that they they're sentenced to Abashiri, which is like in the like most northern north part of Japan. This would be like. This would be like if you took like the Gulag and Alcatraz and put them in one. Like Abishiri. Mm. and it has its own series called um, Balls of Abashiri. Um, they came out in like the mid '60s, and they're actually pretty awesome. Um, so like going to Abashiri is like a death sentence in itself. Like it's like the worst place you could ever imagine. And then you see them because like Takeda and Hirono were totally locking horns in proxy war, and then you kind of see them humbled in a way in this movie and it's a very potent scene and also like you said thrasher you really feel the cold and how shitty it must be to be up there i got to wear those sandals with no socks oh, oh. yeah oh yeah well, and you you mentioned you mentioned uh, alcatraz i mean if you, i don't know if i i've been to alcatraz i don't know if either of you have but it's extraordinarily windy as windy as san francisco is going yeah. out to that island where alcatraz is it, the wind just bites you constantly and even though Alcatraz hasn't been using as been used as a, as a prison in years, decades, even several decades at this point, uh, it feels really strange being physically in that spot. Yeah, it's and be, yeah, and uh, you know, the, and if you want, they let you like go into a a specific um, what do you call it, a, a jail cell, and get pictures in Alcatraz. And I was like, no, I don't want that. No, th- <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. absolutely not. <laughs> Oh well, yeah, I, I give it. Oh sorry. Oh uh, yeah, I, I give I give this a sequel. Yes, probably. You know, it, overall, maybe not one of my favorites of the series we've seen so far. But the, the ending, I think, was was very strong. I think there there's a lot of good ideas. I, I really feel I have complicated thoughts about this series, and it's something I'll need to watch quite a few more times. I think, and it does seem like the series a, a kind of film that anything in this whole series, I imagine that the more you watch it, the more you get out of it, the more you can make the connections between the characters. And, um, it, it also makes me want to read more about what actually happened during that time span. So I can think of no uh, greater compliment in that sense. Awesome. Uh, Alex. Definitely a sequel. Yes. Um, and the thing that like you were saying, it's, um, you know, I've, I've watched these films so many times over the years and each time I lock onto something new, like this time through, like, um, Takeda, is like a new character I hang on to. And I'm like, wow, this guy's so fascinating. And each time you watch it, it's like a Scorsese movie. You, you lock onto a new mm. character and you see the story right. from their point of view. And it's very fascinating. So it's a very rewarding series. And I would always urge anyone to watch it, um, you know, multiple times because it's, because it's a strong series and it's very fascinating. And, um, 
culturally you just get a whole different you just get a wash of 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 um it's a wash of familiarity in that you're seeing something you you really are don't have a familiarity with um so yeah it's a it's a wild movie and it's funny like i was saying earlier and i've harped on this before is that like you think it's going to run out of steam and it's quite the opposite it's just got more steam it's just got more momentum and more material to throw at you and it's like it's it it straddles this line of being relentless, but it's not. It's it's quite it's quite good. All right. Well, let's do a pitch a sequel. But what I had in mind is uh, you have the end of this movie being kind of you know, on a somber note. The the two uh, the leaders of the different gangs are in, in the, the jail talking about what their sentencing might be, and um, you have. Um, shows Ohorono going back to his cell and he, he reaches in his back pockets and takes out a deck of cards. This is not just any deck of cards. This is a deck of Hanafuda cards made by the company Nintendo. That's what they got their start. It, this is actually true. Nintendo got yeah. their start making cards in the late 1900s that ended up being very popular as a uh, playing cards for the mafia. So as the social Hirono uh, takes the cards out he he gets a bit wistful, gets a bit uh, moist in the orbitals. <laughs> as no, <laughs> as you say. yeah, <laughs> as you say. And uh, and we get we get a flashback to him in the good old days, you know, playing cards. And I think it would be structured as five separate card matches set in different periods in uh, his ono's Hirono's uh, life in the yakuza and it would be very low budget because it would just be a bunch of guys playing cards over different time periods but because of that you would learn like little tidbits and adventures that were hinted at in other films this this would truly be something kind of a a time filler sort of sequel it's it's the puppet master seven of the series if you will and uh and I, i would call it battles without honor and humanity card tactics You'd be surprised because there are a lot of Yonkers movies out there that are actually mainly consist of guys playing cards or dice games. <laughs> you so always saw this right movie in. was Mahjong. <laughs> there are a lot of Mahjong in this one. That's right. A lot of yeah. Uh, Thrasher, what's your picture sequel? All right. So I want to I want to go completely uh, Gonzo. Uh, I haven't. I don't think I've done that uh, yet. So my my sequel is uh, so after the police crackdown. A small, and I mean small handful of mostly bumbling lower level Yakuza didn't get rounded up and they're still out. And they sort of, they basically believe, oh, well, since everyone else is dead or in jail, we are technically in charge of the Yakuza and all the gangs, although they all dispute who's actually the main boss. But, you know, they know the Olympics are coming up and they know that there's money to be made in gambling. And what they discover completely by accident is one of their number. Whenever uh, he get he gets uh, some fresh made omo yokan, this uh, sweet potato dessert from uh, mm-hmm. from his grandmother, and he eats it, and inexplicably, it's like a cheesy live action Disney movie. He gets super strong, super fast, and super athletic, but only for about three minutes, you know, Ultraman time frame. And so they get this great idea. It's like, well, let's take him to the Olympics. Let's just mm-hmm. enter him in every contest. We'll win all this money. We'll, you know, we'll win all this money, and then you lose the last event, which no one will expect, and then we'll make even more money. 
and so uh, and so they do and so they do that uh and uh and and it starts to work we we see him in the span of 3 minutes trouncing all the other olympic athletes it, even in events that would take far longer than 3 minutes to play that's how decisive his victories are like he does a pole vault without even doing a pole he just woo over it. um so they they're getting ready to, they're getting they're getting towards they're getting to the second to the last event and they run out of the emo yokan, so they go and get some more, but it doesn't work, and then it doesn't it doesn't give him his strength, and then they realize, oh, it's it's not his body having a unique ability to react to emo yokan, it's it's specifically his grandmother's emo yokan, which is grown from uh, which is made from sweet potatoes grown in soil contaminated by radiation from the atomic bomb, so. <laughs> They have to delay the Olympics while they rush to his grandmother's house to get some more of her emo yokan. Uh, they bring they bring it back to the stadium, but what ends up happening is it ends up getting mixed up with these with it ends up getting mixed up with uh, this, these gift baskets with local Japanese delicacies for the other athletes. So in the final event. Every athlete gets superpowers. It's this whole farcical mix-up. Uh, a fight, like a, a fight, breaks out uh, in, in the Olympics. But it's like it's like a Popeye fight. People are punching each other into orbit. People are like picking up. Uh, like people are just like juggling, uh, juggling shot puts and tossing them at each other, and they're clanging off other people's heads. Uh, and in the end, the Olympics are declared a draw because the stadium gets destroyed in this in this zany fight. <laughs> but and you know the the yakuza they leave they're bruised but they're a bit wiser and they still have a, they still have a little bit of money but they also still have some of grandma's emo yokan so it's not so bad is it called battles without emo yokan and humanity yeah it's better than what i was thinking so yes <laughs> we're what, go what were you thinking well i was thinking battles without honor for humanity uh olympic punch-up night <laughs> That, that sounds more Japanese. I mean, when you were starting your pitch there, Asher, and you talking about him eating his uh, grandmother's uh, Imo Yokan, I thought, uh, I don't even know if that's the right pronunciation for it. Um, was that right, Imo Yokan? How do you say that? I, I, I sounds good. presume that that is correct. Why, why not? I, okay, let, let's, let, let's assume apologies to our fluent uh, Japanese listeners. Um, I, I thought you said he was when he ate the Imo Yokan, his brains would switch place with the Imo Yokan. So the Imo Yokan... <laughs> Would would think like a human, and the human uh, form would would act like a sweet potato, what dessert, whatever that means. But I, oh. you know, your Olympic idea is much more inspired, much more tied into battles without honor and humanity. Okay. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, going Gonzo for once, as I tend to do every time because it's the lazy route. Uh, Alex, what's your pitch is equal? All right, mine's almost kind of veering on on thrasher's olympic idea so after mm. all the police decimate the the yakuza families and their their business connections and their um you know affiliations with the olympics is that they get discouraged and what they do is that they have their own black market olympics in hiroshima as opposed to tokyo however they base their games around you know yakuza activities for example you have a you have a shotgun javelin uh javelin contest where you have an adversary run and then you have a you know a sharpened on shotgun like you do in this film and you try to you know spear the guy with it from a long distance um you know you have a you know pachinko ball um lottery you've got um you know how sh 
fast you can shoot down the boss in the alleyway thing. And what they do is that they generate so much money from this black market renegade um, bootleg uh, Yakuza Olympic offshoot that they, um, you know, rebuild their gangland empire from, you know, again, illegal racketeering, which is what, you know, made them so prosperous to begin with. So, you know, you also have like, you know, judges that, you know, can get their guys out on parole quicker and stuff like that. Like, how fast did you get them out on a murder bail? Like, ooh, two and a half point days. So that's how they rebuild their empire in this tumultuous time post war Japan. It's called um, Yakuza Papers um, Hiroshima Olympiad. Part Very one. good. Part one, of course. Because um, that way, if you have a part one, then down the line, you can do a part zero. Bam. When, exactly. Like and we do good. the same story, similar names, younger cast, everyone loves a prequel. Pretty good. So now we're going to do uh, what you're watching, um, you know, it, it, with all the, the quarantine and the different things going on in different states here. People have been watching a lot more things, I think. Uh, I have been watching a um, show. Actually, not. I take that back. It's not a show. What am I thinking? It's a computer game that's an open beta on Steam, and it's quite interesting. I don't believe I've talked about this on the show, but if I have, you can stop me. This is called... What's the name of it? God damn it. Hold on. <laughs> Smash Brothers Without Honor and Humanity? Yes. Uh, uh, oh, it, it's called Not for Broadcast. Um, it's a fascinating... I, I call this... It's kind of a new genre of computer games. I call it like a... Like a communist work simulator. But <laughs> th- th- this one, it's you're a guy that works on a TV station that does live TV. And so you're the, the interface is the control board. You switch from camera one to camera two and hit the button to make it go to live. You you uh, and it it takes place in chapters. It's uh, in uh, open beta, so the whole thing's not finished yet. And because of coronavirus, they can't really film a lot of the live action sequences like they could before. So I don't think it's going to be finished anytime soon. However, you can play a demo for free on Steam called Not for Broadcast Prologue. And I, I just urge all of our listeners, everyone, just just to play the the free prologue, and if you like it, chuck in some money for the uh, uh, beta version, uh, early access thing. But I mean, it, so it takes place in England in this fictional um, kind of future where two candidates are, are running for, uh, I believe, prime minister or something, and and depending on who you choose the camera to focus on during the news broadcast, one party gets more popular than the other. Um, you, you also get very surreal situations where, uh, the politicians are giving a speech all of a sudden, uh, anarchist streakers, uh, get on, on the set and you have to cut around them live with like a two second delay. There's also cursing. So you can bleep things in real time as, as the game progresses from day to day, uh, more and more complex, uh, game mechanics are thrown at you. That's I don't know if I'm selling yeah, I I don't know if I'm selling this pretty cool. well, but it's a very 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 interesting, very novel game with the kind of cheeky British sense of humor. I especially like the humor in the the videos for commercials you can put on, uh, and you know every action sort of has has a consequence. And in the later stages, like the electricity starts going bad at the studio, <laughs> so you have to. But I I think uh, Thrasher in particular, uh, you might be reminded at some of our. Uh, film classes in our salad days at, at the <laughs> university. 
Owen oh, our antics hosting Jester Sexplosion on WRFS Savannah Radio. Yeah, it's got us thrown off the radio station, the college radio uh, station. Scad, right? Yes, it's Scad. Why don't, why don't you tell the story about Jester's Explosion? Because it's been a while. So, Jester's <laughs> Explosion. We were we were both heavily in student media, and we both wanted to do kind of yes. like a, a radio show, a comedy radio show. We wanted to collaborate, um, and you know, but we you had to clock a certain number of hours as a regular DJ before they let you do your own show. This so, is such horseshit. <laughs> I well, I can sort I can I can understand what you shouldn't have needed as many hours as they were a student media council required. But anyway, I yeah. um so I kind of pulled double shifts at the radio station to get all those hours to get our to get our show. Uh, and Matt had already done several before. And originally, and and the whole idea was we would play bits from classic comedy albums and do our own improv. And it was originally going to be called Alcoholic Party Clowns which was a, a reference to uh, All Flesh Must Be Eaten, one of my mm. favorite books slash uh, t- tabletop RPGs. But the the student media director, and, and I think wisely so, because it led to a better, worse title, said we, we don't really want to have a reference to alcoholism in our one of our show titles. Can you come up with something else? So we came up with Jester Sexplosion. Uh, and it was great. We had, For two hours uh, on weekends, mm-hmm. we would play classic comedy bits from lots of different sources, uh, we would and we would do our own comedy bits and our what, our big reoccurring thing is we would do inside the actor's studio with James Lipton interviewing video game characters <laughs> and and like mostly Nintendo characters and one of the running gags is they all were connected to some horrible Hollywood scandal. <laughs> <laughs> now I have to say, Thrasher, what I don't remember is in in uh, on Scad Radio, my show uh, that I had after putting in my hours at the Gulag doing the, you know, whatever to to qualify. I mine was called Do the Mario, yeah. and it was video game music. What was your college radio show? Because I don't remember. I I'm not sure. Aside from Jester's Explosion and my usual DJ stuff, I'm not actually sure I did yeah, another did. show. I did. I did pitch like a a radio. I did pitch like a a, a comedy that was a parody of old timey radio shows, which we could have done, except we had nobody to do the sound effects, and like <laughs> the only person who could commit to doing the character voices was me, and I was really worried I would burn myself out, and you know, and. I only really have one like woman-ish voice I can do, and it would have ruined the comedy of of what I had intended. Uh, well, why don't you demonstrate your womanish voice right now? Well, it was sort of like this, which which sounds more like Mickey Mouse than than a human woman. Mm. Um, <laughs> oh, sl- oh yeah, that's what it, it was going to be called, Slap Dasher, and it was about a World War Two. Uh, flying ace who pilots, who flies a time-traveling B-52 bomber with a scientist, a reporter, and an annoying kid. Yeah, the annoying kid. uh, (laughs) Yeah, but like, that was like, that was the big, like, that was the, one of the big, is is that most of the characters would respond at some point with, oh, slap. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think the only bad woman voice I can do is uh, kind of like the Terry Jones homage. You presume like, you have a good one you can do. <laughs> oh, oh, that's true. Yeah, I don't. I, there's a, I'm, I, as you said at my wedding, Thrasher, for which you are the best man, Matt is one of the worst actors I've ever seen. <laughs> one of the best worst actors. One of the best worst actors. But yeah, the Terry Jones is like, and 
Bob and Ellie, what are we trying to do here? Why don't you go around and have a little bit, a bit of all the gumbos here? Yeah, so, Hello, Mrs. Gorilla. That boy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So now, now that we've uh, bored Alex thoroughly with our college stories. No, that, um, that was great because I my cousin went to SCAD. I think around the same oh, time. Oh, really? Guys. Well, yeah, well, what, what program? Um, I, I think he was in the music program, but he had a hardcore band called... Um, it was either 12 Days Awake or Circle Takes a Square. Um, again, I, I saw 12... I think I saw 12 Days Awake play. Uh, no shit, yeah, he was a drummer. Yeah. Yeah, I think I saw them live uh, back then. In, like was, a local nightclub or something. Yeah, they're like... They're thrashy. They're they cool, yeah. Yeah, 12 Days Awake, then there were Circle Takes a Square. So, yeah, this guy had a connection. I, I used to hang out in Savannah because my grandfather was down there uh, cool. way back in the day. Beautiful city. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Very beautiful. And I love there was this video store next to the Knights of Columbus. And I remember they had all this, like, you know, video store shit. But they had this, like, shelf that was dedicated to, like, filmed in Savannah. And then they had these, like, prestige movies, like, Forrest Gump, uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Good and then, evil. like, Swamp Thing 4. You know, it, the five, you know, it was it was great. Was that, was that a home run video? It was, uh, there was, like, the... The, the Mushroom Pizzeria, and then there was the Knights of Columbus right next to it. I know exactly yeah. the place you're okay. talking about. I, I used to have a complete collection of the English trans, the Dark Horse Comics English translation of Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy, and about half the collection uh, I bought off their shelves. I, I bought quite a lot of the um, cheap Marvel... Oh, fuck, what was that called? The Marvel reprints on the cheap-ass newsprint that was oh, black the, and was white. The Marvel Essentials? Yeah, I remember Essentials. those. It might have been Essentials. Yeah, they weren't hardcover. They did much nicer versions of them later with the actual original colors. But that's I'm looking at there. some now. They were the Essentials. Yeah. Uh, they're very good. Okay. Um, yeah, I got like a mountain of VHS tapes from that place. I got like um, a lot of formative titles. I got like some Kurosawa and Bergman and like I think I got Bad Lieutenant on VHS. Yeah, that was... the. Because VHS was, like, really getting faded out by then. So they were just, like, dumping them for nothing. It was, like, two bucks a tape or something like that. That's was, so like, the perfect time item. to do it. So, yeah. they had a, so they had a door in the back that went to where they had their adult videos and DVDs uh, right. and, and magazines. A surprising amount of material. It was as big as the legit part of the store. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I don't think they let me in because I was underage at that time. I think I was like nineteen. A, a sensible distance. Uh, uh, no, that would be. I believe that would be of legal age for 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 pornography in Georgia at the oh, time. Oh yeah, maybe I was just knocked over by the by the by the VHS movie. Yes, I was. I was. I was dumping in. It was a family vacation too. So, right. It, it doesn't help when when you go to the register and say, "Please, sir, which movies have all the ladies' boobies? Where's your?" Pornography, sir. Please, uh, I would like to see the Naked Nights. Uh, in addition uh, to these DVDs, I would also like um <laughs> one of your oh, one of your finest porns, please. Cry, <laughs> cry, get nine lives of a wet pussy, please. <laughs> Which is so. What have you been? <laughs> yeah. So, what have you been watching, Alex? Um, have you guys? Speaking of creepy weird sex stuff have you seen cherry 2000 have you guys yes heard? i have this, no no i've only seen the poster which looks delightful but it's um, incredible at first i was like ah, this, need to watch I was it. like this is gonna be stupid it's gonna be this dumb movie about a 
dumb guy trying to get his... It's about a guy who loses his sex robot wife. And then he goes on this, like, western trek to reclaim another Cherry 2000, like, sex cyborg. It's just a discontinued it, model. Yeah, they're like, they don't make him that good anymore. And I'm like, this guy sucks. This is such a dumb movie. And then the tracker that brings him through hostile territory is Melanie Griffith. And she's just simply delightful. And she's like, I feel like, yeah. And I feel like there's this like this alternate universe where she has this like terrific career as a, as an action star. And it's like this like delightfully unironic Western sci-fi. It's like Mad Max Blade Runner and like the searchers rolled into one. And it's, like, so playful and weird, and you have this, like, this guy um, plays this, uh, I believe it's, like, Tim Thomerson, and he's, like, yeah. this, like, new age bad guy, and he's, like, he's, like, David Koresh, as if he read too many, like, self-help books, you know, he's, like, he has these, like, underlings, and he's, like, keep your eyes away from the sun and be yourself, like, <laughs> it's hilarious and so weird, and, and very, like, you've got, like, Ben Johnson and Harry Carey Jr., these, like, western stars in it i was so surprised and in, in impressed by it so cherry 2000 fucking rocks two other things i like about that is one like th- those retrograde societies that they encounter as they travel oh, yeah. through the wasteland outside of the big city they're they all seem somewhat self-aware it's like they all deliberately decided hey a, a sort of apocalypse happened i say we become the weird 1950s people what do you say yeah, who's with me but the other mm. thing is it's one, of, it's one of the few movies that understands how miniaturization and uh, uh, works. And like, what, what, what is it? What is it? Planck's law or Planck's where or where uh, your computers get half as big, but twice as powerful every like 14 months. Right. Yeah. I'm probably getting the name wrong, but like they totally get that. And like Cher- Cherry 2000, her whole personality, memory, and source code it's fits like a on a CD-ROM that's the size of a quarter. Yeah, it's like the size of your thumbnails, a tiny like little boop boop. And I was it's like, some, it's not some dumb-looking cartridge. It looked right. cutting edge then, and it looks cutting edge now. Yeah, like it's very convincing, actually. And like I like I was saying earlier, I was like this is like I was like this is gonna be so dumb and so tongue in cheek, and then it, like it's like this very like rousing adventure film. <laughs> I was I was so impressed by it. It was it was really wild. It was so much fun to watch actually. When you so, said it, Melanie it, Griffith, it reminded me of a, a really good book called The Devil's Candy. Have you ever read that one? No, no. Uh, the Devil. Uh, I'll look up the author right now. Uh, book. Yeah, um, the, the Devil's Candy, The Bonfire of the Vanities Goes to Hollywood by Julie Salomon. It's a, an insider look at the making of The Bonfire of the Vanities by Brian De Palma, in oh. which Melanie Griffith was in. Um, and not not a great movie. Uh, ambitious, you know, it's ambitious to try to, to do a movie of a Tom Wolfe book of that size. Yeah, especially that but, one. But, but the funny thing is, like, she goes into such lengths as why Bruce Willis is an asshole and 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 has a good Melanie Griffith story of how she got a boob job halfway through the shoot, and so it messed up all the wardrobe, and they had to adjust things for that. But it's oh it's it's a kind of infamous uh, making of book, looking at the excess of of uh, the early '90s. Uh, and I would, um, yeah, I'm, I I see a copy of it for less than five bucks on thriftbooks.com. Awesome. So yeah, I, I I would recommend that one. Um, if you like the, those, you know, it's along the lines of that making of book about uh, 
oh fuck what's that 80s michael shimita movie that lost money oh heaven's gate i just watched that yeah today, <laughs> yeah it's like it's like the book about the making of heaven's gate which is just very uh insider information very it's, good all right as interesting as the movie itself yeah in some cases more so depending on yeah. uh your point of view yeah all right so next week we're going to talk about the final movie in the initial uh, five film cycle battles without honor and humanity final episode uh alex what do you got to plug Oh, um, you can find me on Twitter at Crab Nebula nineteen fourteen. I also do some writing for filminquiry dot com and battleshippretension dot com. Uh, Thrasher, you got a Kickstarter, right? Yes, the uh, Fading Suns uh, uh, Pax Alexius uh, edition Kickstarter is still going strong as of this recording i think it's still got 15 days left they've blown past a they're having to come up with some new stretch goals because they blew past the funding limit pretty quick uh i uh did not create this uh classic space opera rpg that credit goes to uh uh ed greenberg and bill bridges uh that being said i am contributing to this new edition i'm writing uh some of the faction books so if you want to get uh your hands on some of my writing from the get-go back this kickstarter uh uh, the faction books are available as add-ons so definitely check it out fading sons pax alexius kickstarter I, i hope nowadays when you're working on those projects thrasher that you're not using yahoo groups anymore (laughs) No, thankfully I am not. Good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I have been knee-deep into trying to get this uh, Uwe Boll video game out that I've been working on for the past year and a half. I hope it comes out and gets released. I'm confident it will uh, sometime this year. Game 2 I haven't started yet. That's also due uh, this year for reasons. So, um, uh, yeah, I'll I'll be a busy little beaver. Um, And I've also been accepted by Film and Quarry to start writing for them. So uh, I'm hard at... Oh, thanks. Uh, And and, uh, hard at work on my first piece, which is going to be a profile of one of our favorite actors here at SequelCast 2, Tim Curry. Nice. Nice. So I'll I'll be sure to make as many naughty jokes as is permissible for the uh, tone of that website, which is uh, uh, highfalutin. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Don't forget Tim Curry singing the cucumber song. <laughs> you know, you have to send me that link. Uh, you mention that every time, and I, I think I've, I keep <laughs> on forgetting that it exists. <laughs> that one's quite, you know, I, I think of uh, Tim Curry quote. Someone on Twitter was passing around the scene from Home Alone Two, in which Tim Curry cannot pronounce pizza correctly. <laughs> when you remember, he's the butler of the hotel, and he's like, "Hello, he's Kevin McAllister, you have your." Or the concierge, yes, and he has like a you know, pepperoni pizza. I have a card from uh, one of the servers from the Plaza Hotel, from the, the, the Home Alone 2 hotel, and um, mm-hmm. he actually gave me his card because I ordered a, a Basil Hayden's Perfect Manhattan. And he was so like, whoa, he's like, you really know your cocktails. Here's my car. I'm like, no, I don't know my car. I'm just an alcoholic, all right? Um, (laughs) But yeah, but the the menu has like the Kevin McAllister Sunday and everything. But uh, the service was, yeah, no, it was a very good server and a lovely dining experience, so. Does the uh, the bar have uh, nothing but angels with filthy souls playing on the television the whole time? 
that would be to their benefit, but this is after the Christmas season, so yeah. Just as long as they change I, Trump character. Home Alone too. You know, I just uh, my family just moved from uh, uh, Centerville, Virginia, to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and we were we were going. Thank you, Thrasher, for the cucumber link. Um, we were <laughs> actually it's a zucchini. And uh, excuse me. Uh, in we were moving down to Georgia, and uh, I wanted to see Home Alone 2, and the only theater we knew of was like a 30-minute drive. So my mom, bless her heart, took me 30 minutes and sat in the theater with me to see Home Alone 2. And then we came back, and on the TV there was a commercial and saying, you know, Home Alone 2 is still in the theaters, and it, it does a clip of Kevin McAllister going like, I want to see it again, or, or something like that. And <laughs> after seeing the commercial, I asked my mother the same thing. And uh, she paused like a split second and was like, hell no, we're not seeing that again. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, Home Alone. And Home, Home Alone. Alone. Yes. Uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Uh, and yeah, next time we'll be talking about wrapping up the series with Battles Without Honor and Humanity final episode. The Rise uh, of Skywalker. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the Rise of, of Skywalker proxy the rise of sky proxy war walker proxy menace that's, yeah that joke didn't work proxy menace yeah. that's better um yamamori takes manhattan jeez <laughs> uh, <laughs> now uh Ideki boogaloo <laughs> shoujo hirono's european vacation <laughs> yes Uh, for sequel cast two, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. This is Alex. Saying, here, take your asthma medicine. The Olympics are going to be when. Man, Kobe really is a bomb these days. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, the house got bombed in Kobe, and that was a big. Oh, oh right. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Those improvised explosives. Anyway, you can go ahead. You can put the zucchini song at the end of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) What is it from? Is it from a television show? Or it's apparently like it was an old classic, dirty music hall song that Mm. Tim Curry. I don't know if Tim Curry did it as part of an album, but I first heard him do it when he performed it on an episode of Saturday Night Live. And I can I can never find that clip, but I can find a different recording, and it's you know just this song about an impressively large zucchini and all the verses oh. describe the zucchini in increasingly sexual terms it's such a lovely color so nice and round and fat i've never seen a zucchini grow quite as big as that <laughs> oh what a beauty i've never seen one as big as that before it's a it's a great yeah. bit that's awesome right another great tim curry number is uh something he performed that you can uh, I think they released it on CD, but they originally just played it like uh, at at Disneyland when you're in one of the restaurants or something. But he did a cover of Davy Crockett, that is a a very weird spoken word version backed by a full female uh, backing vocals. Like born on a mountain top in Tennessee, killed him a bear when he was only three. <laughs> so like, what we need is we need Tim Curry's voice, but doing William Shatner style of singing. Packed my bags last night. Pre-fly. You can't. There's like, except no substitute. There's only one Tim Curry, and he is just perfect. I mean, come on. Yeah. 
I missed the opportunity to see him at a convention a year ago, and I, I fear I, he won't be out this way again, but I'm not sure. We'll just have to oh. see. Maybe. And uh, yeah, I mean, speaking of, of Tim Curry vis a vis William Shatner doing covers, uh, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever <laughs> common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. What else could I do? I said, I'll see what I can do. Oh boy, it's, it's getting late, it's fellas. Laugh and drink and screw! Because <laughs> there's nothing else to do. I took her to a supermarket. I don't know why, but I had to start it somewhere. So it started there. Oh boy. There, there's a concept out there somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> Call it uh, Tim Scurry or something. <laughs> Well, we're going to do, like, at some point we're going to do, where there's going to be, uh, I want to live like COVID people. <laughs> you know, something topical. Exactly. Yes, damn yeah, the, the the ghost of Paul Lind will come up and, and do a cover of kids, but it'll be COVIDs. I don't know what it says with COVID. Well, I feel like we're days. veering dangerously close to the Paul Garvel Memorial mashup. Oh, yeah. Uh, I should reach out to Mr. Gold. We'll see how he's doing. It's been a long time. All right. I haven't, I haven't heard a jovial voice in a very he, long time. It sounds like he moved. Uh, yes, he moved to the New Mexico, I believe. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And I, I was uh, last time he was on the show. I was in a poor mood, and I had to quickly apologize. Oh, but I remember. That's another um, story. There was like the there was a roast, and then people there was like part, I think part mm-hmm. of the roast that they joked that he was dead. And I thought he was actually dead for a second. I was like, oh, shit, Paul Gumbel's dead. And I, I looked it up, and it was obvious that he wasn't. But, yeah, that, I think that he, was... He, like... he did have a suicide attempt or two, but... Um... Oh, okay, yeah. I guess they turned that in, I, into, like, a fake roast, I think. Yeah. Yes, that's on YouTube. On that hilarious note, um, have a good night. See, <laughs> yeah, see you next time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, what a beauty. It must be two foot long or even more. Such a lovely colour, so big and round and fat. I've never seen a zucchini very quite as big as that.